This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So we're looking at Jesus' encounters with different people. We're trying to take it through the Gospel of John. Some of our guest speakers are going to do Jesus' encounters, but they're going to cheat and take it out of other Gospels, and I'm full of grace, and let them do that. Uh, but the, last week we looked at Nicodemus, and we looked at how God's, uh, Jesus had said to him, even though you're an insider, even though you've got loads of things going for you religiously, you need to be born again. You need to start from scratch. All that, all that doesn't count for anything. What counts is knowing the life of God inside you. And this story is very similar. Although the woman's an outsider, her, the response is still the same. Uh, she still needs the life of God inside her. So it's a, it's a woman at the well, but I've called it soul first. Okay, let me just read and we'll pray. So, John chapter 4, verse 4, we'll jump in. It says, When Jesus left Judea and went again to Galilee, he traveled through Samaria. And he came to a town in Samaria called uh, Sychar. Uh, it's called Shechem now, or Nablus, actually, if you go to uh, the West Bank now. He traveled through Samaria, came to a town in Samaria, Sychar, near the uh, land that Joseph, uh, Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey sat down on the well, it was about midday. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for her disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? He asked, for the Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. I'm going to read a bit and move on because it's a long reading. So So it's interesting actually that in John's Gospel, you find that days are always, the days are always good and the nights are bad. So Nicodemus, seemingly a good man, comes at night. This woman, seemingly a bad woman, uh, comes to Jesus during the day. So, so, and actually, it's interesting, Middle Eastern women would not go to the well, would not visit the well uh, at midday. They wouldn't do it because it was hot and so what happens is that the, the women of a village would go into the village at, in the morning, in the cool of the morning, or in the evening, in the cool of the evening, and they'd go together because they would carry very heavy water jars and they would need some help to kind of lift them and put them on their heads. And each, uh, and the, each team of women would have a, a leather bucket that would, uh, with a sort of cross of, uh, of, of sticks that could be folded and rolled up, and they would drop the bucket into the well. There wasn't a bucket uh, naturally on the well, and the, the well would have a capstone on so you could sit on it. Uh, and so what happened is these women would, would come, but this woman comes on her own at, um, in the midday. So there's obviously something immediately that we, we know about this woman. You probably know the story and think, yeah, I know about this woman, but just bear with, just kind of hold the tension that she's actually coming to the well at the middle of the day. And what she does is that she finds um, Jesus sitting on the well. 
And um, he's sitting on the well, and she's coming in the middle of the day. Now, she must see him. And he's probably a traveler. She spots him as a traveler, probably by his dress, uh, picks up that he's Jewish and not Sumerian. And he sees her coming, and he sees her coming. Jesus sees her coming on her own. And he must have suspected she's probably an outcast, or she may have been uh, a prostitute. Often prostitutes would come to the well at the, uh, in the midday to meet a traveler, on their own. So she's approaching him and he's thinking, uh, now obviously he's God, but you know, in terms of social conventions, he, uh, here's a woman coming on her own. Is she a, a bad woman? And, and Jesus uh, is sitting there and, and doing that, but she's looking at him. And normal, what, what, what would be pro- pro- proper would be for her to move away, for, for Jesus to move away, or the, the, the traveller to move away about 20 uh, feet away from the well as a way to indicate, say, that I'm a good man. I respect you culturally. I'm not going to go anywhere near you. It's safe for you to come to the well. But Jesus doesn't do that either. And so what we get is this kind of tension of a man and a woman, in that culture, you've got to understand, it's not like our culture. In that culture, a, a, a man would not look a woman in the eye if she wasn't his wife. So we've got this woman coming unaccompanied, which is against all social conventions, and we've got Jesus on his own, sitting at the well. We should move away from the well, and he doesn't. So immediately we've got this kind of tension between a man and a woman. But also, we've got this uh, tension between a Samaritan and a Jew. If you don't uh, know the background there, it's helpful. Basically, the, the Jews and the Samaritans, uh, what had happened is that Israel had, had been taken into exile, and a few people were left behind, and the area was settled by people, Canaanites and other people who weren't Jews, and they intermarried, and they created this kind of mixed tribe, the Samaritans, And they had a bit of a mixed religion. They had some of the Jewish religion and some kind of pagan religions all mixed in together. And what had happened is they built, because they believed in the first five books of the uh, the Bible, they built a temple uh, just near this place, actually, on a mountain called Gerizim. And they built this temple and they said, we need to worship there. Now, what the Jews had done, as we probably know, is that they had a temple in uh, in the city of David in, in Jerusalem and they worshipped there. The Jews are really cross about this. So in, in AD, uh, uh, sorry, in BC, uh, 126 BC, the Jews went and invaded Samaria and tried to destroy the temple on the Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans were incredibly ticked about that. So what they did is they got loads of dead people's bones and scattered them in the temple at Passover to, to make the temple unclean so nobody could worship in the temple. So you've got this kind of fight, and it still goes on, isn't it? You know, West Bank... Uh, Palestine and kind of Israel, it's still going on in that sense. You've got this uh, don't mixing. So you've got this man and woman, Jew and Gentile, and then you've got this traveler and bad woman tension all suddenly loaded into the story. So if you're John's readers picking up this story or Jesus and the woman in the story, this is what what you've got uh, immediately in the story. And Jesus, what he loves to do, he loves to uh, overcome insurmountable barriers in fact, I didn't even know I'd written that, but actually that's kind of what I was saying in what I felt God was saying in the worship, that Jesus likes to overcome insurmountable barriers. So I think he sits on the well, and, uh, and when the woman arrives, he says, give me a drink. And she immediately understands the tension. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, 
ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. But Jesus is determined to, to overcome, the, uh, overcome the barriers because he wants the good news of, uh, of, of his gospel to reach her. So the first thing he does is, is he overcomes the, the, the social barrier by asking her for a drink. He overcomes the social barrier uh, and he breaks the social taboos. He could have thought, this is a potentially bad woman, I'm going to move away, whatever. But he overcomes the taboos and chats to her. She would have been shocked by the fact he chatted to her. And in fact, Jesus constantly broke those seemingly unnecessary social taboos. I mean, I know that sometimes people think that church is sexist, but actually, Jesus is neither racist nor sexist. He's not sexist because actually, he included women in a way that was incredibly revolutionary. So Ken Bailey wrote this. He lived in the Middle East for about 15, 20 years, taught at a university in Lebanon. He wrote this about Jesus and women. Jesus not only talked to women, I mean, that thing's like, really? That's really radical, isn't it? You talk to women. In that culture, it was. Jesus not only talked to women, he taught them. Women weren't taught. He taught Mary as she sat at his feet. He invited them into his traveling band of disciples. Women financed his mission and witnessed his resurrection. The radical nature of the changes in attitude towards women Jesus introduced are beyond description. Jesus crosses that barrier in an incredibly sexist society as we would view it. They wouldn't have viewed it as sexist, that's just how they did it. But Jesus crosses that barrier. The next thing he does, he asks her for a drink. Now Samaritans, John says in, uh, in his passage, that Samaritans don't associate with Jews. What that really means is that they don't touch the things, that, that, that Jews wouldn't touch the things that Samaritan had touched. So Ken Bailey actually describes that uh, going to a house uh, with a, a Jewish, uh, an Orthodox Jewish man into a, 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 an Arab house and, and the, 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 he was offered some food uh, and he, he refused it and then they offered him and he, he said, I'll have a banana. He took out a knife, uh, his own knife, peeled, sliced the banana threw, uh, with, and then threw the skin away and then ate the banana. Because he wouldn't touch the skin that had been touched by the un-Jewish, defiled person, but he would eat the banana. And that's the kind of like length they went to, to make sure they didn't touch each other. Because the Jews thought, if I touch this woman, if I touch a defiled Samaritan, I'm going to become unclean. And obviously in their culture, they couldn't go, to, they couldn't go worship for two weeks. Now some of you might think, hey, that would be great. What do I touch? I'll be away for two weeks. But actually in that culture, it's like you couldn't go to worship. So Jesus crosses that, and it's really interesting that actually Jesus crosses that barrier. He's not bothered about the, the, the um, defiling. And what happens is, you find this all along with Jesus, that Jesus is crossing barriers. So actually, he touches things that are supposedly make him unclean. And he makes them clean. So obviously, what they used to think is, the Jews used to think, if you touch something bad, that'll make you unclean and not fit for God. Jesus, who is God himself, he came and touched things and made them clean. And I think it's a really interesting lesson for us as churches, because I grew up in church where basically you mustn't touch or be involved in anything that was worldly or bad, because if you touch that, that will make you unclean. So I wasn't allowed to go watch James Bond films. You know, if I went with on a, a 200 yards of a pub, my mum would smell the alcohol on me. You know, she was like, whoa, just stay away from these things. It was like bunker down Christianity. Because these things would make you unclean. But actually, if you read Jesus, actually he touches the things that are unclean and makes them clean. And that's what we want to do, church. And that's what the church, the Christians should do. We should touch the dirty, broken world and make it clean.
And Jesus is doing that. He's saying, I'm not bothered about all the conflict. I'm not bothered about the racial barriers. I'm not bothered about prejudice, about clean and unclean. Give me a drink out of your dirty bucket, please. But actually, even more interesting as we look at how Jesus encounters this woman, before he's, all he said is, give me a drink, he actually uh, he puts himself in a vulnerable position. He puts himself in a weak position. So here's the creator of the cosmos who could have, you know, if we had a different God, would have, could have said, water. I mean, Moses makes water pour out of the, of the rock. Je- Jesus could have said, let water come up. Let a spring come up from the ground. But he doesn't. He makes himself incredibly vulnerable. He, he makes himself uh, needing a drink. Thirsty and needing a drink. He makes it that the woman who is the most, as it were, potentially dirty, broken, vulnerable woman, he makes it that she can help him. And I think that it's really interesting that far too often Christians have adopted an approach of moral superiority. You know, the kind of white missionaries going into Africa with this kind of sense of moral superiority as if we've got something to give and you are the receivers, of, you better be very, very grateful to receive it. And we can do that. I, I, I know the most uh, impotent uh, kind of people, gospel sharers are those who want to prove a point, those who want to demonstrate their knowledge, those who want to win an argument, they want to point the finger, make a judgment, those that are self-righteous. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He becomes incredibly vulnerable. So he's a helpless baby, we know that. He's a poor carpenter. Here he is a weary traveller without a bucket. Or how do you say it down here? Bucket, is it? Bucket, was that right? Did I say bucket? Oh man, I've lived here down too too long. A bucket from where I'm from. Okay, and so, so Jesus has done all this missional stuff even before he said anything. And I think as, as people of God, if you're, a, if you're a Christian this morning, as people of God, we need to do those kind of things. We need to cross those barriers. We need to touch the broken. We need to make ourselves vulnerable before we've even mentioned Jesus. I, I, can I have a nod? Yeah, okay, good. So let's press on. So uh, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God. So he said, give me water. And she said, Don't, you know, I'm a woman, I'm Samaritan, what are you doing? He said, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and the one who is speaking to me, speaking to you, saying, giving you a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, the, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket. And the water is deep. So where will you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank for himself, as did his sons and livestock? Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said, give me this water so I don't have to get thirsty and come here and drink. The woman's definitely intrigued at this point. Uh, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and the one speaking to you, I give you living water. Now, actually, she probably sees those as two separate things. The gift of God, the one speaking, and the living water. Three things. I don't really know what the living water is. I don't know who the one speaking is. I don't know who the gift of God is. And she, but she thinks, I'll have their living water. But actually, they're all the same. We find out in the story that Jesus is the gift of God. Jesus is the living water. And Jesus is the one, the Messiah, who's speaking. But she doesn't do that. And often I think that, that all questions about mission all break down to who is Jesus. Wherever you go, that is the ultimate question. So I thought that, that, you know, that it was great at Alpha and Tony Jarrett was great. But I thought, 
actually, the question of who is Jesus is really the ultimate question. Not are you going to win gold medals, are you going to do all that? I think he did great. But actually, the ultimate question we're asking is not am I going to be successful in my life, but who is Jesus? That's the ultimate question that everybody needs to answer. That's the ultimate question that his friend was uh, badgering him with, the athlete was badgering him with him. But the woman sort of sidesteps the question. She's actually racially provocative to him. She says, are you greater than our father David? Now, I would have been immediately saying, well, uh, Father Jacob, I'd immediately say, well, how can you claim Jacob as your father? And la, 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 and having a big theological discussion. Jesus just lets that roll. But the promise of living water grabs her attention. Now, you've got to understand that in a semi-desert environment, a taste of fresh water was incredibly life-giving. We, we don't get that, do we? We don't get it. I mean, we just have water all the time. I don't know, has anybody ever been in, a, in, a, in an arid or a desert place or a place where they're, they're really incredibly thirsty? I'm not talking about Friday night after work, where you think, oh, I need to get down and have a quick shandy. Harold, you've been in the desert? In Abu Dhabi, there's a sense, I guess in Abu Dhabi, I've never been, but in Abu Dhabi, I suppose, oh, even though they've got all the technology and water does pour from taps, there's, it's a, it's, there's an understanding that this is an incredibly precious resource, that there's a life-sustaining significance. We don't get it, I just spilled water, but I don't, we don't really get it that actually this is life-sustaining. For us, it's just another random commodity. We don't even think about it, we just think, man, is my water bill that expensive? We don't think, then. this is a life-sustaining commodity. This, this is something uh, you know, that, that, that can reach deep within. We don't really understand the nature of true thirst. And I think the woman's expecting Jesus to produce like an artesian well, a well that bubbles up. She says, look, you know, Jacob, who was an incredible patriot, had to dig right down to get the water. It's a long way down. The well's deep. Are you going to just produce a spring of water? So Jesus said, well, I think we need to unpack this. So he says, whoever drinks the water I will give him uh, uh, will never thirst again, ever. In fact, the water I'll give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Jesus is offering this kind of life-sustaining, thirst-quenching water, not that comes from the outside, but something inside. And I think she's, she's suddenly intrigued. Now, I'll call the sermon Soul Thirst because actually, not just this woman, but every one of us has, what, uh, has a thirsty soul. We may not be thirsty for water, but we all have got a thirsty soul. We're constantly put, throwing the bucket of our, uh, of our lives into uh, the well of life, and we're drawing up and drinking on career and money and sex and romantic love and popularity and comfort and family life and all those things that we think, yeah, that, would be, that will fulfill us. We're all thirsty for those things, but yet we find ourselves thirsty and thirsty again and again. In fact, this is a familiar pattern, and I think Jesus is referring to this. In Jeremiah, uh, it says this, 600 years before Jesus met the woman at the well, uh, it says in Jeremiah, Be horrified at this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly appalled. The Lord declares, my people have committed a double evil. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water and dug wells for themselves that cannot hold water. That's what we do. Other translations say they've drunk from muddy puddles that can't satisfy. And we're trying constantly to satisfy ourselves by drinking from these muddy puddles of this and this and this and this, and ultimately it doesn't satisfy. And actually, Jeremiah is saying, heaven is appalled at that, shocked at the foolishness of it. 
But Jesus is offering this living water and saying, I can give it. I can put it into you. I can give you absolute, unfathomable satisfaction in the core of your being, regardless of what happens outside of you. Let me say that again. I can give you absolute, unfathomable satisfaction in the core of your being, regardless of what happens outside of you. I was interested in, uh, I was talking to somebody who was a Christian lost their job. I'm not saying that, that's not a shock or difficult. But actually, uh, the, the, the thing was, well, well, I've lost my job. Why, why, why hasn't God helped me? Why, what, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be immune, immune from losing, losing my job. As if that actually God, what God does is create positive circumstances that flow into us and make our lives happy. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying there's something really solid and sustaining that this living water, this life of God inside of you that's so strong that whatever happens outside, you don't collapse. Tim Keller puts it this way. Good old Tim Keller. Uh, we're quoting him a lot in this series. Pastor in New York City says this, I think most of us aren't able, most of us aren't able, we're unable to recognize our false soul thirst for what it is. As long as you think there's a pretty good chance that you'll achieve some of your dreams, as long as you think you have a shot of success or you, you can experience your inner emptiness, this is interesting, as drive. You feel empty, you think, no, that's driving me to succeed. I'm going to be great at my job. I'm going to be brilliant with my family. I'm going to be... I'm, I, you can experience that inner emptiness as drive. Very perceptive. And your anxiety. How, what's going to happen? You think, no, it's going to be better. That's hope. And so you can remain almost completely oblivious to how deep your soul thirst actually is. Most of us tell ourselves we're unfulfilled because we haven't been able to achieve our goals. And so live almost all our lives admitting uh, without admitting to ourselves the depths of our thirst. Does that track? We don't really feel soul thirsty. We might feel driven or hopeful or anxious or fearful, but we don't feel soul thirsty. Now, it's interesting, actually, that, that the rich and famous, they get a chance to look at life a little bit different from us. Uh, because, actually, they get to, to see life what it's like at the top of the ladder. When you've climbed all the way up and you've got your dreams fulfilled, you get to, they get to see life like that. Most of us don't get to see life like that. We think, oh, I'm just climbing, I'm climbing, I'm climbing. We're busy climbing. And so we never get to the top of the ladder. But a guy from, I heard a guy from the Alpha Course who was talking about his, uh, on the talk, a friend who was a, who was a, a very wealthy banker. And his friend wasn't a Christian and said to uh, Charlie Mackesy, who is, and said, I wish somebody had told me that when you cl- get to the top of the ladder... There's nothing there. But most of us don't get to experience that because we're too busy climbing the ladder. We're too busy saying, well, I forget that, I get that, I get that, I get that. Next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. And we feel that when we get those things, our soul will be satisfied. And it drives us on. But those who get to the top of the ladder, the the tragic thing is we find that they, they commit suicide. You know, the Kurt Cobains of this world commit suicide. Rich, rich and famous people commit suicide. You know, the, 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 it's, not, it's just endless because they get to the top of the ladder and they find, actually, I'm still thirsty. I've got everything I want and I'm still empty. You could have picked a thousand quotes, but here's one from uh, Sophie Loren. Attractive woman, successful screen legend. She said this about her life in the 1970s, which was like the peak of her... Sorry if you're young, I know most of you are young. At peak of her kind of success, she says, in my life, 
there's an emptiness that's impossible to fill. But Jesus is determined to break through and touch that soul thirst with this woman. And it seems like he changes the question. It seems like he's about to humiliate her or point the finger at her, but he's not. He says, go and call your husband, he told her, and bring him back here. I don't have, an, I don't have a husband, she answered. At this point, she's been truthful, but a little deflective. You have answered correctly, said Jesus, for you've had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you say is true. Jesus isn't trying to point the finger. You think at this point, if you read the story, that Jesus is doing what I said last week. He's doing that finger-pointing thing where he pick, let's pick somebody. As Danny's not very sinful, so I feel okay. But you point the finger at somebody and say, you're a sinner. And you do that to make yourself feel very good. And you do that to make them feel very bad. And that's why the word sin has become this tainted, kind of self-judging kind of word. But actually, Jesus isn't doing that. He's not saying, ha-ha. Now I have your attention, I'm going to say, you are a sinner. What he's trying to do is to prompt her to make her aware of her soul thirst. He's trying to prompt her and say, well, what have you been drinking? How's it going? He's nudging her. That question that reveals her soul thirst, go and bring your husband. Suddenly it all tumbles out. I haven't got a husband. Yeah, you've had five husbands. The man you're living with is not your husband. We don't know if she's the bad lady or she's been badly treated. The more I read this story, the more I think in that culture it's unlikely that she's going to be a divorce five men. The men divorced the women in that day. She's more likely a victim, exploited, than she's an exploiter. But maybe she's so used to getting a guy rejecting her that she's already got her eye on the next guy. Where am I going to go to? A single woman in that culture is very vulnerable. Who's going to... Who am I going to go to? But she's, the question reveals her th- soul first. Jesus is saying you've been trying to find it in men. If you want to understand the nature of living water, do you, want, you need to understand what you've been trying to quench your thir- thirst with. Jesus said you've been trying to find it in men. You've been looking for it in men. Hoping that after one husband rejected you, maybe the next one will be better. So that everyone in town knows, town knows you've already got an eye for the next man while you're sleeping with the one you're with. It's left you empty, alone, and an outcast among your own people. The question reveals the soul thirst. So what's the question that reveals your soul thirst? But let's say, let's say your issue was gambling. And I said to you, how's your bank balance? It's suddenly going to reveal a question. There's a tragic situation of a guy who was leading a church in Australia uh, who I knew quite well. And that question got asked to him. How's your bank balance? And suddenly it was revealed that he'd been gambling thousands of Aussie dollars for years. And it all comes to the surface. What's the question that you'd get asked? How's your family? He asked to the, 20, to the 70-hour-a-week executive burning his life out in his career. How's your sex life? He asked to the porn addict. How's, this, how's your church going? You add to the insecure, you ask the insecure pastor. <laughs> you know, that what reveals your soul first? And I think God still gives us those situations. We're, we're coming to land now, guys. But God still gives those information, gives us those pictures into people's lives. The Bible calls them words of knowledge. But he does, Jesus doesn't do it with a white suit and a, and, a, and a swagger and a God TV moment. He just asks a little question. Go and call your husband. How's it going? 
The woman replies, Ah, I see you are a prophet. <laughs> How did you know that? And then she says, interestingly, it seems like a red herring, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that we should worship in Jerusalem. Is it this temple or this temple? And it looks at one level like the woman is blatantly changing the subject, and she probably is. It looks like she's changing the subject. Boy, you've talked to me about my life, I don't really want to talk about that, so let's talk about theological issue. Do we worship in Jerusalem or do we worship in this mountain? And that's true as a hot button issue, but I think actually, if you think about it, I think she's, we, we do her a disservice to say that she's just changing the subject. I think that she's, she's actually understanding what's gone on there. So what's happened is the prophet has exposed her sin. The question is, how are you going to get forgiven? How are you going to get forgiven? Where am I going to go? I need a priest and a sacrifice, and a temple, where am I going to go? It's actually an incredibly profound response. Do I go to Jerusalem? Do I go to there? I need to, this issue in my life, this soul thirst, this, this sin needs to be forgiven. How am I gonna, where am I going to go? And I think it's a great question. Jesus answers it brilliantly. He says, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. She thinks, that's not very helpful. And he adds, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. It's a superstition. We worship what we do know because the salvation is from the Jews. That would have been a shocking declaration that both temples are obsolete. But actually, who? Who's the priest in this story? You know where I'm going, don't you? Because we go there every week. Who's the priest in this story? The one who goes between God and us. Who's the temple in this story? The place where God dwells. It's a Sunday school answer, isn't it? Yeah? And who's the sacrifice in this story? A time is coming. It's really close. A priest who goes between us and God. A temple where God dwells. A sacrifice laid down. It's interesting on the cross. What does Jesus say? I'm thirsty. He does it again. He's weak and vulnerable because that's how he changes the world. That's how he does it. He dies on the cross in our place. He, does it. he takes a dirty cup. In fact, if you read about Gethsemane, it says, I don't want to drink this filthy cup. Take it from me. This suffering, this judgment, I don't want to drink it. But he drinks the filthy, dirty cup of our punishment, of our sin. Drinks it down. She's asking a great question. But he's offering her living water because he comes out of the grave with an unquenchable life, a life that can't be stopped flowing, a life that's so strong and so pure and so clean that even death can't stop its flow. It's a great question. But also there's an interest in the way that Jesus answered because he talks about worship. Let's just land here. I think the woman's beginning to grasp her sinful life and she needs to do something about it. But she needs to also understand the root of her sinful life. She needs to understand the root of her soul thirst. Tim Keller wonderfully again takes us on a step here. He says, everybody... He says, soul thirst is a worship issue. Everybody's got to live for something. It's not as if Jesus... But if it's not Jesus, it will fail you. First it, whatever you're living for will enslave you. Whatever that thing is, and you'll tell yourself, 
that you have to have it or there's no tomorrow. That means if anything else blocks, anything else threatens it, you become inordinately fearful. If anything blocks it, you become inordinately angry. If you fail to achieve it, you're never able to forgive yourself. And then if you do achieve it, even then, it fails to deliver the fulfillment you expected. What's it? What is it? Because if you've never dealt with that it, you've never really become a Christian. If you've never said, I turn from that to Jesus. And if you want to walk as a disciple, going on a journey with Jesus, you need to understand what's that it that keeps rearing its head, that I keep saying that's going to be the answer. Because if it's not Jesus, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be dry and thirsty on the inside. David Foster Wallace, who's an American novelist, wrote this in a speech. This is like a graduation speech. Just a little excerpt and then... We're done. He says this. He's not a Christian. He's just a novelist. I say just a novelist. I'd quite like to be just a novelist. Everybody worships. The only choice you get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing God with a small g is God to worship is that everything else will eat you alive. Not only be thirsty, be consumed from the inside. If you worship money and things as the real meaning of life, you'll never have enough. Worship your body and your beauty and your sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. I found it shocking. Cheryl Cole, you know, the, what's she doing? Beautiful lady, but just wants to be thinner. Just wants to be better. She's obviously not happy in her inside. I'm pointing the finger at her because it's ours, isn't it? Worship your own body and your beauty and your sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when the time comes and age starts throwing you, showing you die a million deaths before the real time comes. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid of losing power. So you need more power to control those around you and numb your own fear. Worship your intellect and you'll end up feeling stupid. A fraud in danger of being found not knowing. Look, the insidious thing about all these forms of worship is they are unconscious default settings. We're like the woman at the well. We all come wanting something to satisfy us. We need to encounter Jesus. We're going to do that as we break bread in a moment. We need to encounter Jesus. But he finishes wonderfully. He draws the woman in and says, actually, not that you're excluded. You're a bad woman or you've had five husbands or you've messed it up or whatever. He draws the woman wonderfully in and says this. It says, the Father's seeking worshippers. It's not the Father's got enough worshippers and he certainly doesn't need you. He don't need you with your messed up soul thirst woman. He says, the Father's seeking worshippers. Now, come on. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father is seeking such worshippers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah, the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he's going to explain everything. She's thinking, I get it, but it's not for today. It's not for today. Surely her sins can't be forgiven now. A soul thirst can't be satisfied now. Surely the living water, the everlasting life of the new age cannot be available to her now by this dusty well. Perhaps it be another day when God's chosen Messiah dramatically appears, but not now. We can do that. We can think, I know I'm thirsty. 
But it's not now to deal with it. It's another time. Another. I'll go on the Alpha course. Maybe think about it. And that's okay. But actually, there's a time that's a now time where you've got to say, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to feed on Jesus and be satisfied. He says, I'm here. He says, I'm here. It's time. I'm the water, the living water, the one who satisfies. I am he. It's the first of his I am statements. I am me. And then she runs. we got all the disciples. We haven't got time for that. But she runs into the village and says, could this man be the Messiah? He's told me everything. He satisfied my soul thirst. At last, I found a man who's faithful and true and loving and good. And that whole village sees the transformation in her. I just like to imagine, actually, as she's got old, and she's surrounded by this new community of Jesus followers that's grown up in this unlikely place. And this, she says, you know, I, remember that time I was just about my daily stuff? I was just off to the well, and none of you wanted to go with me. And you know what my life was like, man? I don't want to talk about it. But she says, you remember I went there, and I met him? And they all say, we're so glad you went. We're so glad you found the unquenchable living water because now we've all tasted it. That's what happens when you get your soul thirst met. It's got to flow. It's got to flow. We're going to break bread together. Jesus said, didn't he, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on me is never going to be hungry again. That's what we're doing. We're feeding on the bread of life. We're feeding on Jesus, the one who satisfies. Can I have a cup, please? But Jesus is the one who said on the cross, I am thirsty. And drank a cup of judgment and punishment so we can drink the cup of life. says it in Psalms. I will take out of your hand the cup of wrath and place in it the cup of life. Now, they're only little tiny ones, but actually symbolic of the life of God. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.